Bad Environmentalist, the podcast on how to care about the environment when you really suck at it. I'm Phoebe Lewis and I work as an environmental practitioner and have been spending the past 10 years studying and working in the climate and environment space. And I am joined by my wonderful co-host, Maria Stakya, a humanitarian worker based in Iraq who spends her rest and recovery periods doing podcasts with me. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. It's so great to be back in Cairo. Um, Just remind me again why we're doing this. Because I consider myself an environmentalist. Mm. And what what is an environmentalist even? Well, that's... Take it down. Okay. Well, okay. So according to Wikipedia, the Mm -hmm. authority on everything that I do at least. An environmentalist is a person who is concerned about protecting the environment. So that's a broad spectrum. And I think that that's a good definition because I would say that I am an environmentalist, but a lot of the times I don't always take action on environmental Mm. issues. And I think the reason for that is because I feel like there's such a wealth of information Mm -hmm. that I'm constantly getting information on what meat to eat or not to eat meat and what clothes to wear and what condoms to use and all these small ways in which I should be making an impact that it's just information overload it's just too much it's like it's another like parameter on on how to judge yourself basically right yeah, like you're exactly. like oh i'm fat and i'm also polluting the environment <laughs> <laughs> did you read my journal again <laughs> but um and i think as well i've been working in this space for quite a while even mm. though i'm pretty young and I found that when I was coming towards the environmental movement a lot of the stories never resonated with me i feel like a lot of people i talk to who kind of came into the environmental movement, went mm. and like sat up on a mountain and had a realization about the earth and how wonderful it was. It wasn't like that for you? <laughs> no, it wasn't like that for me. <laughs> and But then, because I grew up in mega cities where mm. uh, they're super polluted. And so... The only mountain is a garbage mountain. <laughs> well, exactly. And Did you sat on top of one of those? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was a lonely Friday afternoon. But I was sitting there on top of my pile of, of garbage. And this was actually in Delhi when I really... This kind of resonated for me. I grew up in India, partly. And just seeing the huge amounts of pollution in yeah. the air, in the land, in the Yamuna River, everywhere. And it was not endemic to there. Like, every place I lived was so polluted. And so it was that slow drip of realization from there. And then it concerned me as well that when I went to Europe for university... Mm the face of the environmental movement was very different from what I understood it to be. It was, it, I found it quite ostracizing because I think that the, the way that we see the environmental movement mm. as a bit of a like hippie... Vegan! Exactly. Maybe a beard, if that's maybe available to you, <laughs> if that's available to you in your practice today. The, um, th- that like just didn't resonate with me and I yeah. just felt like I couldn't be included in that space. How about you? Well, I grew up in Sweden in the countryside, so like nature's all around. But I was a vegetarian from quite a young age. And so my interest in the environment peaked when I was 15, probably. I was reading lots of books about carbon emissions, climate change, the ozone hole. And that meant that I have this kind of self-righteous, you know, look on, on, on the environment or environmentalist movement where... I feel like I've been on this ride for a long time, whereas in fact, I am not very well informed. I do not take any actions really in my daily life. I I travel loads. I do eat meat. I take long showers. So I'm probably not only a bad environmentalist, I'm possibly the worst. But I mean, you're a humanitarian worker in Iraq. You can only deal with one existential <laughs> crisis at a time. But I think that that point about being kind of 
self-righteous is something that I often like as as an environmentalist I do feel self-righteous mm. and preachy and I don't like that mm-hmm. but I've noticed so when I went on my first date with my ex-boyfriend mm. he like showed me the menu and he's like what would you like there's like there's shrimp and beef should we do that and I was just like well let me tell <laughs> you and went on this unsolicited rant yeah. about the environmental impact mm-hmm. of eating different things mm. especially fish and beef mm which is probably why I'm single now. (laughs) But it's just indicative of the fact that a lot of the time when we talk about the environment, it is in a very kind of patronizing way that I think just pushes people away. And so I think part of what we kind of discussed and what we want to do here is go on our own journey and bring whoever wants to come with us on this journey towards really trying to understand what our role is Mm -hmm. and understand if we should care, how we should care. Right. Awesome. So tell me, what are we talking about today? We're going to chat a bit about anxiety and stress Mm -hmm. when we think about the environment and climate change. Mm -hmm. Do you feel stressed about it? Yes, although I do kind of go between feeling like the world is going to implode in some, like, you know, apocalyptic scenario. So I might as well just not give a fuck about it or like it's even too distant and I can care about it tomorrow maybe yeah yeah yeah. I it tends to be one or the other Mm -hmm. and what I find even though I work in the climate space on pretty much a daily basis if someone asks me okay imagine what things are going to be like in 2050 I actually very rarely engage my brain in Mm. what that would look like partly because I just don't think I can imagine that and but more importantly I just am too scared about it And I don't think this apocalyptic rhetoric is helpful because I don't think it's totally realistic. Mm. But we're going to chat about that in a later episode. But for this one, it's just realizing that the mental health impact of climate change and Mm. environmental destruction is different depending on how it's kind of physically impacting you. Like, so for instance, uh, if you live in a community where you've been impacted by extreme weather, like tornadoes, uh, or like the recent floods in Mozambique, or let's say changes in the climate are impacting your subsistence patterns, like if you're, uh, you know, part of the indigenous community in around the Arctic Circle, or um, versus somebody like the two of us, right? Middle class, living in an urban environment where to us climate change is still quite a vague concept, right? It's just a sense of pending doom without really knowing exactly what it is and what we should do about it. Yeah, exactly. And so, because I used to feel that a lot, especially when I was a teenager, because mm. I felt like I knew enough to know that the shit was hitting the fan, mm. but not really, I didn't have any power to do anything about it. And so I was trying to research this more mm-hmm. recently and came across this term eco-anxiety, mm-hmm. which kind of embodies that sentiment mm. that I felt a lot. I mean, I still feel it now, but I felt it a lot, especially as a teenager and as a student. And that's actually what we're going to be chatting to our expert of the day about. Mm-hmm. Her name is Susan Clayton, and she is the Whitmore Williams professor at the College of Worcester, which is based in Ohio. And she is a conservation psychologist. A what? Sorry. A conservation psychologist, mm-hmm. which I didn't know about and think is amazing. And she basically, I think that is when you are focusing on the implications of environmental damage or environmental mm-hmm. change, what implications environmental change has on your psychological well-being. Awesome. Shall we listen to what she has yes. to say? Yes. 
Welcome to the Bad Environmentalist podcast. It's our pleasure to have you on. Well, thanks, Phoebe. It's a pleasure to be here. So we would love to chat with you about the concept of eco-anxiety. And we understand that climate change can impact people in both a direct and an indirect manner. But I think for a lot of our listeners, the concept of eco-anxiety isn't totally understood and processed as part of its role in our lives. So if we could just start by asking you to let our listeners know what eco-anxiety is. Sure. And I want to stress that this is not a a clinical diagnosis or a term with a very precise definition. It's not like we have a checklist where we can say, oh, this so-and-so is suffering from eco-anxiety. But it is a term that has emerged to describe some of the emotional responses that that people are describing in order to us or in response to to climate change and, uh, you know, the, the anxiety and worry about the future that's associated basically with the idea that, um, Bad things may happen to things that we value, but we're not quite sure what they are or when they will happen or, you know, how extensive they'll be. So this combination of uncertainty and and worry, basically. Right. And I find it fascinating because... Uh, especially when I was a student and I wasn't, I was learning, but not actually actively uh, working in the kind of environmental space. I really, I felt this kind of what is uh, eco-anxiety really profoundly because I just felt like I, I kind of had no control. And I mean, that's, I still, it's still a sensation I feel, but I just recall feeling it very strongly as a university student. And so in your experience, how has eco-anxiety evolved and how does it impact people on both an individual level and at the community level? I think that it's really um, our, our understanding of it is is evolving as it's it's becoming clearer. It's becoming see people more and more people are talking about. Um, so it's sort of, uh, you know, started out, I think, as in, in this very vague, I think of a, a, a dark cloud kind of way. And then the, the outlines are becoming clearer, partly because we are becoming a little clearer about what kinds of impacts climate change will have. So I think when you, you know, read about some of the climate events like droughts or wildfires or, or flooding or, or coastal erosion, and people are beginning to be affected by those things or to know people who have been affected by them, um, then the eco-anxiety becomes much more concrete. And so we're really beginning to see, I think, people's understanding um, of what it's going to feel like for them. Right. And do you think that there, like within communities, there is a sense of how that impacts not just you as an individual, but how it will impact the people around you? And is that a conversation that you are starting to see happening? I'm not personally seeing that. And I think uh, I happen to live in an area that is not experiencing any really serious effects of climate change yet. I would not be at all surprised if I suspect that you are seeing some of those conversations in places like Florida, where they're really dealing with um, you know, nuisance flooding and sea level rise, uh, or in California with the wildfires. Um, there's research showing that you know, some of the communities that, let me back up for a second, I think you need to have a sense that the community itself is going to be affected. So there are places in which people are aware that their entire community is at risk. Some of those are, are some indigenous communities, for example, up in Alaska or uh, you know, northern Canada, where they're really being affected. The whole geography of the area is changing due to climate change. Uh, the 
the Gulf Coast in the U.S. as well. Some of the Louisiana communities are also finding that their their entire community is is threatened by these geographical kinds of changes. And so I think there is, in that sense, in the, in those cases, a sense that we are experiencing this not just as a collection of individuals, but as a as a community. Absolutely, and. So I come from Barbados in the Caribbean and I've, I haven't lived there for a long time, but I find it really interesting every time I go home to see slowly that increased awareness at the community level. I think that there's still a ways to go in recognizing the impact that climate change will have on us as islanders. And, um, but that, that awareness and that sense of community uh, responsiveness is really changing um, as the years go by. And that kind of eco-anxiety seems then, as you pointed out, to be in part induced by our sense of inability to comprehend climate change amongst other factors I mean, as a challenge. And so can you tell us a bit about what the barriers to really comprehending climate change are? Well, there's there's barriers to comprehending it, and there's barriers to accepting it, and and those are two different things. But it's a you know climate change is a very very uh, complex process, and I'm not a you know a, a climate scientist, so I couldn't describe to you all the linkages. We're not very good at at systems thinking and recognizing how one thing we do in this domain has an impact in what seems like a completely different domain. So that's certainly a barrier. And um, for some groups in particular, it can be a, a it, it's so inconsistent with their worldview. So um, for example, some colleagues of mine studied uh, environmental attitudes among the Amish, which are a very conservative religious group. Mm-hmm. And they can't accept climate change because their religion tells them that God takes care of the world. So basically nothing humans can do could possibly threaten the world because it's in the hands right. of God. So they just can't even comprehend it at that level. Yeah, That's really interesting. I am... Um... I think we're going to address this in another episode a little bit, but we've been, uh, I find it fascinating seeing the different communication styles on climate change uh, over the years. And one of them is really the idea of speaking to people's values. And yes, in some ways it is kind of an intractable, intractable problem, but if you're able to really identify what those community values are and perhaps figure out how you pivot your message in response to that, I, it, it seems to be quite an effective way of, more effective way perhaps of getting your point across. Exactly. And I think um, sometimes when we try to persuade people of, of something, we're just, we're focused on getting them to agree with us. And that may not be the actual thing you need to do. So maybe you don't need to have this particular community accept that climate change is occurring. Maybe you just need to get them to accept that renewable energy is a good idea, which is a completely different mm-hmm. objective. So you can kind of respect uh, where they've started from and still get the change you want. Absolutely. And as as part of this, uh, a concept that I found quite interesting is the idea of environmental generational amnesia. So people being unaware of the extent to which the environment they're surrounded by is being damaged. Do you think that that plays a role in our, or does that form a kind of barrier, our inability to really process the fact that there is environmental damage around us? That's an interesting question. I think certainly this is part of our our tendency to first not pay that much attention to the environment. Robert Gifford referred to this as environmental numbness. We just Hmm. kind of assume things will go along more or less the same and don't really notice small changes. And then um, that generational amnesia refers to the fact that we, we each, we learn 
a particular environmental standard and then we may not recognize how much degradation has already occurred. But interestingly, uh, and I don't know the answer to this, I, I, I suspect that that's actually less true than it used to be because we are beginning to see more dramatic changes. And so at least some people are no longer ignoring the environment. They are thinking, hmm, it, it, it does feel hotter or, you know, this, this yeah. weather, it is, it is unusual weather. We didn't used to have weather like this. Yeah, for sure. And I, I mean, anecdotally, uh, whenever I'm going around the office and there's a heat wave or something, people always will just say, oh, well, you know, climate change. And they do mean it in a sort of if not dismissive, uh, a bit of a, a tongue-in-cheek way, but it, it, I mean, it is kind of it, it, it's evident evidence of the fact that we're really kind of raising our awareness is being raised on this issue. But I think as well, the points that you raised about the complexity of climate change as a concept and the challenge and the fear that can kind of come with addressing that it tends to to lead people to sort of deny the issue and not address it because it just seems so complex. Would you say that that's fair? Absolutely. So this is the difference between sort of comprehending and accepting. You may be able to understand it, but you may not want to. Mm. And I, I want to kind of point out that we all are quite good at, at denying things that we don't want to believe are true. Um, and at some level, we are all engaged in some sort of denial about climate change, because if we really took it as seriously as, you know, the experts say we should, we would be behaving very differently than we are. But some people are really, you know, engaged in more denial than others. And it's just things that are scary are things we prefer not to think about. And if we have the option of not believing them, we may choose not to believe them. And because there are a number of, you know, prominent political and, and industry figures who say, no, climate change isn't happening. This is silly. You know, that kind of legitimizes people's desire to say, that's right, it's not happening and I don't have to do anything about it. Yeah. And um, I should clarify from my own side that I, I talk, I tend to talk about climate change exclusively, but it's, the, I think this is the case for the whole swathe of environmental changes that we're seeing at the moment. So uh, if I may just wrap up with one final question, which is for our listeners who I imagine are feeling waves of eco-anxiety at times, what kind of actions do you think that they can take to manage that eco-anxiety? Um, well, I would say the very first thing to do is to inform yourself because things are scarier if if they remain unexamined. And if you actually find out well, what what might be happening, what kind of time frame are we talking about? What might the effects be locally? Um, at the very least, you'll you'll feel kind of more empowered because you know more about what's going on. Then the second step would be to actually engage with it in some way, and that could be through you know, personal preparation, what, what should I do? You know, should I need to, do I need to waterproof my house? Do I need to move? Do I need to do something to change my lifestyle so that I'll be prepared for this? And but even better would be to engage with some social groups that might be working to, to combat these environmental challenges or to prepare for them in some way. Because engaging with those groups, again, in addition to being empowering, enhances your social connections. And that's a really good thing just in terms of fostering individual resilience. And then the last thing I would say is to, it's important to, re, to remain optimistic. It's important mm -hmm. for our mental health. It's important for our activism to take a positive look at things and not just, I think that pessimism in a way can be 
an easy out that people sometimes feel like, oh, well, there's nothing I can do, so I don't have to do anything. But remaining positive about it is going to be much more beneficial, you know, psychologically as well as socially. Yeah, for sure. And I think the idea of building your emotional resilience through your individual actions, but through the maintenance as well of your social networks in the context of climate change and indeed any other kind of uh, challenge that you're facing in your life is incredibly important. That's one of the reasons that we're working on this podcast is to really create a social network online for people to to be able to have questions and comments and doubts in this space about this topic. So that's, um, I think that, yes, that building of emotional resilience is really key. So those are all of our questions, but I would like to thank you very much for coming on the podcast. It's a pleasure. Thank you. So we're back. What are your thoughts? Super interesting. But my first thought was, what would you say to a person who thinks that that this kind of eco-anxiety for people who are actually not currently directly impacted by climate change, like it's that it's, is it just another way for privileged people to feel uh, victimized? I would understand that. Mm. I would say in response, though, more generally about feeling like the environment is a privileged issue that... We need to remember that, well, for example, the Global Witness Report uh, in, I think, 2017 Mm. showed that just over 200 land and environmental defenders were killed doing exactly that. So it's not that the environment is some airy-fairy topic. People are already putting their lives on the line Mm. for this. In terms of specifically eco-anxiety... I mean, climate change and environmental destruction, but probably more specifically climate change will impact all of us irrespective of where we live and if you're from a richer country or area you might be more resilient to bounce back Mm. from that but you could still be impacted and so i think you still have a right to be concerned to me it also speaks about kind of this global solidarity that knowing that okay i might not be the the first to be impacted or i might not be most severely or directly impacted but i am concerned for those who will be and i think that's also important to kind of honor that yeah and so what did you feel about the suggestions she made I think they were very good because my my initial feeling after listening to um, the interview, I felt like, okay, I'm anxious. I'm, mm-hmm. I definitely am. And then I go, okay, where do I go from there? And now what's, what I find challenging, like in, in my day-to-day life and the line of work I currently in is that I have quite limited abilities to engage in some of the the chain lifestyle changes i'm not currently concerned for like direct impact on like i don't have a house you know Mm. but okay i could definitely eat less meat or cut out animal products probably altogether right traveling less is is difficult i mean recycling doesn't happen to a great uh, degree in iraq although we are going to try that at the office great uh, which i'm excited about uh, but then, to me, it's also a question of energy. Like, I deal with a lot of shit on a daily basis. Like, I see, you know, a lot of trauma. And I don't think the environment is, like, a, a privileged issue. But at the same time, you know, you have a limited amount of energy of stuff that yeah. you are able to care about during your day. And I'm sure, like, you don't have to work in a former war zone to feel <laughs> that. I mean, I'm sure a lot of people can relate to that as well. So... Absolutely. And I think that we're going to go in the next few episodes into that in a bit more detail. Where can you kind of 
make your mark or where can you focus your energy、mm. but in the meantime i actually want to wrap up by taking a section from An essay that this lady called Kate Marvel, who's a climate scientist and also science writer, working at, amongst other places, the NASA Goddard Institute for Space Sciences. Her way of articulating the sentiment around this I found really helpful. She said that we needed to focus on courage, not hope. And I'm going to read what she said because it kind of framed it for me. She said that I have no hope that these changes. Climate, environmental, mostly、mm. climate. These changes can be reversed. We are inevitably sending our children to live on an unfamiliar planet, but the opposite of hope is not despair; it's grief. Even while resolving to limit the damage, we can mourn. And here, the sheer scale of the problem provides a perverse comfort. We're in this together. The swiftness of the change, its scale, and its inevitability bind us into one. Broken hearts trapped together under a warming atmosphere. We need courage, not hope. Grief, after all, is the cost of being alive. We are all fated to live lives shot through with sadness, and are not worth less for it. Courage is also the resolve to do well without the assurance of a happy ending. Little molecules, random in their movement, add together to a coherent whole. Little lives do not. But here we are, together on a planet, radiating ever more into space, where there is no darkness, only light we cannot see. Wow, it's beautiful. It is beautiful. Courage. Courage and hope. Well, just courage. <laughs> Pick one, guys. Hope's gone. Thank you all so much for listening to us in our first episode. Please get in touch with us on Instagram to let us know if this resonates with you. If you have ever experienced eco anxiety or anything related, you can find us at Bad Enviro Pod for updates and ongoing mishaps as we try to atone for our environmental sins and find our way. Please subscribe to the podcast and rate it with five, five stars, because <laughs> that will help others find it. If you want to do one act of good environmentalism this week, subscribing to the podcast would be it. And then after that, you don't have to feel guilty about anything else ever again. Thank you, guys.